0: And brothers and sisters in the Lord, for our scripture reading this afternoon, we'll turn to the gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, with an Easter focus for the day, we will look at an account of the risen Christ meeting Thomas. Our scripture reading will begin in verse 19. John 20 verse 19, we'll read through to the end of the chapter, with a focus on verses 24 to 31. John 20 beginning in verse 19. We give our attention together, together to the reading of God's word. John 20:19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, "Peace be with you." When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. As far for the reading of God's word. And we have prayed for its blessing and we trust the Lord will in his grace uh, bless it to us. Beloved Lord, um, Easter is my favorite holiday, uh, hands down. Um, I love Christmas and we debate it with my kids because Christmas is easier to love because you get two weeks off of school, right? So it's a little bit tough to ask children what's the favorite holiday because with Christmas two weeks off and potential presents is tough to compete with. But surely, for the celebration of the work of God, nothing beats Easter. Nothing beats Easter. We come together on Good Friday. The service is a little more serious, a little more sobering. It has a special focus upon the death of Christ, and yet over the entire thing is this realization for you. We consider the nails, we consider the cross, we consider the cry of dereliction, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find ourselves broken." We had a family visiting us on Good Friday, and we sang the song, "O Sacred Head Now Wounded," And they said to me afterwards, "Thank you so much for picking that song." And it's a song of tremendous weight, isn't it? It's a song of heaviness, in a sense, a song of confession yet they love the song so much because it just captures the beauty of what God has done for them in the sending of his son wounded for us and so you have good Friday with the sobriety in considering the death of Christ and then you get Easter Sunday Easter Sunday where we gather together and we remember that Christ is risen the penalty has been paid he went to the cross willingly for the sake of his children no one compelled him For he says in John 10, it is his life to lay down and his to take it up. No one takes it from him. He lays down his life that he may show himself the victor over sin and death. And on that Easter Sunday morning, we know and we should know our resurrection. We should know our hope. We should know our forgiveness if we stand by faith in Jesus Christ. That's something that Paul teaches and the Bible teaches us repeatedly. How important the resurrection is for us. One of my favorite verses to, to young ministers comes from Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And he says to this young minister in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David is risen from the dead according to my gospel. Here is Timothy. He is called to bring the gospel to the, to the world. He is called the shepherd, the church of God. And Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And we need that as God's people, do we not? We need to remember that we do not serve a Savior who remains in the tomb. We need to remember that we serve a Savior who has conquered death and we are alive in him. Colossians 3, the whole foundation of our holiness. If then you were raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul emphasizes it elsewhere as well. When the Corinthians are beginning to be influenced by Greek philosophy and they're beginning to think that the idea of the resurrection might just be metaphorical. Maybe the resurrection is just some kind of great idea. The idea that hope wins, that love wins, that even on your darkest day there's a brighter day ahead, every cloud has a silver lining kind of thing. When the Corinthians are thinking about this kind of thing, Paul writes in strong words to them. He says this, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty, if only in this life we have hope in Jesus, as if he's some kind of a special encouragement just for today, if only in this life we have hope in Jesus, and of all people we are the most to be pitied. We are the most to be pitied. Then he goes on to say, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And because he is risen, those who believe in him will rise with him as well. The resurrection is the cornerstone. It's the foundation speak about how we can sing the songs of Easter Sunday not only on Easter Sunday but also during the years because that is our salvation that is our salvation the resurrection of Christ and when we think of this and consider that this is this afternoon in conjunction and connection with our text before us in John chapter 20 what we see in the work of Jesus is that Jesus wants us to know the reality of the resurrection he wants us to know it more surely than we know ourselves He wants to know it in such a way that there's no more doubt, no more fear, no more worry, no more second guessing of whether Christ really is real. Is there really a Savior? Is there really a God? He wants to take that all away. As he says to Thomas, don't be unbelieving. Stop doubting. And believe. The call that we have to do in our lives as Christians today, and the call you have to do if you're considering the Christian faith today, so, realize that God calls you to a position where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is real, that He died upon the cross for sinners, and that He did not remain in the grave but rose victorious over all. And we serve a living Savior. And that is to be the bedrock of our faith, the bedrock of our hope, that Christ is alive. And therefore, by the grace of God, so are all who believe in him. We're going to look at that this afternoon in, in three sections, as we see uh, in our bulletins before us as well. First, we'll see the doubting disciple, or the doubting Thomas, we could say. Secondly, we'll see the gentle Savior, or the love of the Savior. And then we'll see, finally, an admonition, or a summons uh, to faith. We'll look first at a doubting disciple. You ever notice how sometimes, uh, or you ever felt sometimes that in the Bible... Uh, God shows us the failings of his disciples just for us. You ever thought that? One of my favorite portions of the Canons of Dort is when they're writing about how we will persevere by God's grace and faith. If God has saved us we're going to persevere by his grace to the very end. And then it goes on to say but don't think that means you'll never fall. Because Christians can and do have serious and weighty falls. And then it tells us a few examples and it says consider the fall of Peter consider the fall of David sometimes you read through the gospels and you watch these disciples and you realize they're, they're they got feet of clay don't they they're just men and they're sinful men Peter is so bold and impetuous that when Jesus says, you will deny me three times, he says, never will I deny you. Even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And then before a servant girl by a fire, he denies three times with cursing that he ever knew Jesus. The cans of says, hey, don't forget him when you fall. Don't forget him when you find yourself not as strong as you thought you were. We have another example of that today in Thomas. Thomas was an interesting disciple. If you try and study him and look at him through the Gospels, you'll find out he, he, he isn't the most optimistic kind of guy. I don't know who you are. I don't know what kind of character you have. But if you, sometimes you talk to someone and you say, are you a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person? You ever had that question? Are you a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person? What are you asking when you ask someone that? You're asking if when they look at something, they see the good part of it, if they see the optimism, if they see hope in it, or do they default towards the negative? Well, Thomas was a glass half empty kind of guy. There's two times we read about him responding to Jesus. One is in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, the friend of Jesus named Lazarus has died, and Jesus is away from the city where Lazarus died, the city called Bethany and the messengers come to seek Jesus and call him because his friend is sick, and Jesus waits, and he stays in the area where he is with his disciples, and then when he knows Lazarus has died, he begins to speak to his disciples about how he'll go back to Bethany and and go and and visit Lazarus and his sisters. And it's interesting, because when Jesus says to his disciples, let's go back to Bethany now, let's go to the place where Lazarus has died, his disciples are nervous. They say to Jesus, Jesus When we were just there, the people of Bethany were trying to kill you. Why now would you go back? And Jesus says to him in John 11, there's 24 hours in a day. We must work while it's day, while we have the chance. We're we're going back. This is to do the Father's will. It's for the glory of God. And he's going to head back to Bethany. And when uh, Thomas hears that, Thomas has a very interesting response in John 11, verse 16. He says, let us go also that we may die with him. If your Bibles are open, you can flip there. It's rather quite remarkable. Jesus is speaking. He, he, uh, he says this in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes. Well, first he said the, the, the words I tried to quote loosely. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Then he says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Does this sound encouraging? Does this sound fairly hopeful? There's 12 hours in the day. We work when it's day. Lazarus is sleeping. I'm going to wake him up. It sounds pretty encouraging. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say this, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then Thomas, who is called the Twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I love him, I love his zeal. I love his willingness to lay down his life for Christ. But he's a little bit pessimistic, isn't he? Let us also go that we may die with him. If Christ is going to go to the place where people are fighting him, I'm going to be beside him. When Jesus dies, I'll die with him. The other time Thomas speaks is in John 14. If you want to see it, you can flip open your Bibles to that. John 14. So when Jesus speaks about how he's going to go away and prepare a place for his disciples and he'll return and bring them to himself that where he is there they may also be. And uh, he says in verse 4, and where I go you know and the way you know. So he's telling the disciples, you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are the two little insights into Thomas that we get in the Gospels until we hit John 20. And if we can generalize a little bit, if Peter is bold and impetuous, if the Apostle John is the beloved, if James is one of the sons of thunder, Matthew, the precise tax collector, Thomas seems to be one who is a little bit struggling. You see it in John twenty too, as well. You see it because if you look at verse nineteen, where we begin our scripture reading, Jesus appeared to his disciples the night of Easter Sunday. If you know the story of Easter Sunday, early in the morning, the women get to go to the tomb and they see the angel. Mary sees the risen Lord. The women see him as they return. Peter sees the risen Lord the two disciples on the road to Emmaus see the risen Lord but not everyone has yet and so the the disciples on the road to Emmaus they run back to Jerusalem and Peter goes to Jerusalem and all the disciples are gathered together there in the evening and they're sharing their stories and they're talking about how they saw the risen Christ and Peter's saying I saw him and the disciples on the road to Emmaus are saying oh we saw him too he broke bread and then suddenly he was gone he's alive I tell you And then in the midst of this great assembly, as they're sharing their stories, Jesus appears. And he brings peace to these disciples who are so discouraged by his death. And he encourages them to look at him. Verse 20, he shows them his hands and his side. And their their fear is turned to joy. And the Lord gives them the Holy Spirit. And they go on their way and they're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're grateful, they're thankful, but Thomas isn't there. And listen to how Thomas responds. Now, Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with him when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. Now, remember the relationship between Thomas and the disciples. They had just spent roughly two to three years in each other's nearly constant presence as they followed Christ. They spent two to three years watching Jesus open the eyes of the blind, cause the deaf to hear, raise the dead, heal the lepers, teach and feed the thousands. They spent two to three years. You ever had a mission trip where you go with someone else on a mission trip and, and you go and you serve in Dominican Republic or you go and you serve in some area and you're a team of 10 or 12 people and you're there for maybe a week or for two weeks but when you go home from the mission trip, you're a team. You ever had that? You just work together You prayed together, you did devotions together, you served in God's name, and though it's only been two weeks, when you go home, you know each other. That was one of the greatest introductions I had to the church. When the Lord began to take hold of me, I got to go on a mission trip with my local church, and I didn't know a single soul of the people who were on that trip, and it was all ages. And yet, when I came home after two weeks of service, I learned what it was to love the people of the church so much, because we'd served side by side, two weeks, And we were bonded in this very special and unique way. Can you imagine what two to three years with Christ would have been like for the disciples? Can you imagine? And yet, when ten of the disciples, all the disciples except for Thomas, greet their brother and say, Thomas, guess what you missed? Jesus is alive and we saw him. Thomas will not believe. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with someone who is doubting the faith. And they're what we might call an empiricist. An empiricist is someone who, empiricist is someone who wants the physical proof. They've got to have physical proof. I won't believe it unless I see it. That's Thomas. His ten closest friends tell him, we saw the risen Christ, and he says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. I can't believe it. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. This is bold language. This This is, this is, this is, this is scary language. And put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Now I want to ask you a question. If you had a friend like this, how would you treat them? And if you had someone this stubborn and this hard of heart not believe you, what would you do? You sent 10 witnesses to him. 10 people who could say, we ourselves saw Jesus, and he still didn't believe, what would you do? The reason it's such a beautiful thing that God shows us the disciples in all their living color and all their faults and all their frailties is because you see these individuals who have all their own sins and all their own failings and who fall short in so many ways in themselves. And over against them you see a Savior who never gives up on them who never cuts them off, who never throws them away, who never turns them aside. To the contrary, the next time Jesus appears, Thomas is there, and Jesus greets his disciple so hard of heart with the words, peace to you. You and I have so many failings that we often are led to believe will be the cause for which God will cast us away. And the devil loves to bring up our failings after we've committed them. The devil loves to remind us of all the weakness of our hearts, all the times we haven't believed, all the times we've fallen into sin, all the reasons God would have to say, enough is enough, no more of you, I will show myself to the ten, but Thomas, your day is past. And instead, what does Jesus do? But he takes this group of disciples, Peter who denied him three times, the rest who all forsook him and fled, Thomas who wouldn't believe even when ten people said, Thomas, it's true, we saw it. And he comes back to them and he meets them again and he shows them nothing less than himself. And what does God do for you? Why should you love coming to church? Why should you love gathering with the saints? We sang Psalm 63 at the beginning of the sermon. What is that psalm about? It's about a disciple who is lost and and, and in the wilderness and he's thirsty and he longs to see the power of God. So what does he do? He looks for the Lord in the sanctuary to behold his power and his grace. He comes to the place where God meets his people and there despite all his weakness and all his failings he gets to see the Lord again. This is who God is. This is who God is for the doubters. This is who God is for the stumblers. This is who God is for the deniers who by God's grace will meet a Savior who calls them again, who shows them again, who meets them again to confront the hardness of their hearts. Whether it's Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, sorry, sorry, Yeah, Peter, Peter, son of Jonas, do you love me? Three times, do you love me? Whether it's Thomas in this little room, put your hand into the holes of my hand. And Jesus hasn't changed. Isn't that a blessing? That Jesus and the way he was before the cross and before the resurrection is the same as Jesus is after the cross and after the resurrection. I don't know if you've ever seen someone in power goes to their head. Huh? Maybe you used to be really, really good friends and then some time has passed and, and they got some really swanky job or they became a, a big-name politician and you see them again and they're just too good for you. They don't have time for you anymore. Ever wonder if Christ will still have time for sinners when he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father? Do you ever wonder if you have time for sinners when he's paid the price on the cross and he's finished all his suffering and now he enters into the glory that he had had since eternity in heavenly places? He answers the question, doesn't he? He answers the question with Thomas. He answered the question with me. I know times in my life where I have doubted the Lord. I know times in my life where I have said I would rather have my sin than to know what it is to be near to the living Savior. And I have known times in my life when despite all my failings, the risen Christ has met me again. Is that not your testimony too? We're in the second point, the gentle Savior, but Jesus comes along to Thomas and he says, the very things Thomas, it was an audacious claim. I want you to think about what he's saying. Christ was nailed to the cross. It wasn't a fake. The nails were driven right through the, the, the wrist palms of the hand. Another nail was driven through the feet, overlapped upon the cross, a, a spear. Remember, this, 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 is, this, is, this is horrible. But do you remember how when they wanted to make sure Jesus was dead, they took a spear and they stabbed him and blood and water flowed out of his side? Thomas knows the injury from that spear stabbing was so large that he could stick his whole hand into the side of Christ. what he says can you imagine saying that of someone unless I can stick my hand into the injury that they got hanging up on the cross I won't believe they're alive and I thought Christ's humility was finished on the cross I thought on the cross he was humbled in the very humblest of places that he became obedient even unto death I thought after the cross it was all exaltation, and yet here he is, and he comes before his struggling disciple, and he says, Go ahead, Thomas. Put your fingers into the holes that the nails have made. Stick your hand into the, the, the open wound, which is healed, of course, but still somehow there on his side. Don't be unbelieving but believing. What is the love of Jesus? What is the love of Jesus? That he would not only go to the cross to save sinners, but when in the hardness of our hearts we deny the resurrection, he would come again and submit himself again and invite us again to test him and try him and find him true. What is the love of Jesus? That he will not stop pursuing the wandering sheep. What is the love of Jesus when he will not stop pursuing you? Because I tell you this day, he will not. He has promised that no one can snatch the sheep from his hand. He has promised of all the Father gave him, he lost not one. Do you know what that means for you? It means when you find your weakness, when you know you're struggling, when your soul is laid bare, the Savior, the risen Lord, won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will pursue you. He will find you. He will call you home. And you will fall on your knees and you will cry out, My Lord and my God. And you have no other choice. What a Savior! We don't know what happened definitively to Thomas and the other disciples, that the Bible ends before it tells us the history and where all the disciples go and what all of them do. But you know what church history says of Thomas? It says he became a missionary to India, that he went to the east and brought the gospel to people east of Israel until one day he laid down his life for the cause of Christ, According to church history, every single one of the apostles, except for John, laid down their life for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The pessimist, the doubter, the one who said, Let us go and die with him, would one day die for Jesus, but he wouldn't die as a pessimist, and he wouldn't die as a doubter. He would die as a man of faith who knew what it was to meet the risen Lord. This is our God. This is the Jesus we are called to worship. And he is worthy of all your praise and all your heart. Thomas gives one of the most beautiful confessions of faith in the entire Bible. He is the first one who calls Jesus God. My Lord and my God. All his inhibitions, all his doubts are gone. He sees Jesus more clearly than he's ever seen him before. And he praises him. What about you? What does it mean that God loves you when you have walked away from him? What does it mean that God cares for you when you have doubted him? What does it mean that God pursues you even when you've said, I'd rather have sin than have Jesus? What does it mean when you find grace again through the crucified and risen Savior? It should mean one thing, that you learn what it is to fall on your face and cry out, my Lord and my God. And every time we gather here and every time we worship, that is what we are called to do. You are called to come into the presence of almighty God and worship. Because no one else is worthy. No one else. Now you don't have the same privileges that Thomas had. Or do you? You know, we have empiricists here still today, and we have empiricists in our country, we have empiricists in our church, and some of us are scientists, maybe, in heart. I won't believe until I can see it for myself. There's a fantastic debate between a man named Greg Bonson and Dr. Stein, I can't remember his first name. And Bonson's the Christian, and Stein is the atheist, and they're debating, and Bonson says to Stein at one time, what will it take for you to believe in the Lord, And it's an incredible debate because during the debate, Bonson begins to recognize that the Lord might be working on his opponent and he begins to go for his heart and not just argue the arguments anymore. He goes for his heart. But he says to Stein at one time, what would it take for you to believe that God is real, that Christ is his son? And Stein says to him, if this podium right here was suddenly to levitate in the air with no strings and no wires, then I believe in God. And Bonson says, no Stein, you wouldn't if that podium was to levitate in the air right now with no strings and no wires, you would go home saying to yourself, how in the world did Bonson make it levitate? But you wouldn't believe. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells the story of a man named Lazarus, who's a poor man. And he has lived his life at the gate of a rich man's house and they both die And the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven and hell is such a place of torturous horror. The rich man asks first if Lazarus could dip his finger into water and put it into his mouth to quench his thirst and when that is not allowed because there's a great gulf between them the rich man says then please send Lazarus to my family send him to my brothers that they may not come to this place of torment. And Abraham says to the rich man who is suffering in hell your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, but if someone comes back who's risen from the dead, they'll listen to him. And Abraham says, no, if they won't hear Moses, they won't hear even if someone is raised from the dead. Sometimes we think what we need is incontrovertible proof That Jesus is alive. Sometimes we think what we need is what Thomas needed. We need to put our fingers into the nail holes, our hand into the side. That is a beautiful thing, but Jesus says something is better. Verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. Who is John speaking to? This isn't Jesus speaking. Verse 30 and 30, this is John. All of a sudden, John changes the story. He's not writing about Jesus anymore. He's writing to who? Who is he talking to? He's talking to you, he's talking to me. He's saying, Jesus did a lot more than what I've written, but what is written is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We don't get to handle the risen body of Christ. That's in heaven. And one day you're going to see it, and it's going to be amazing, but it's not yet. We don't get to handle the risen body of Christ. But John says, the reason I wrote all this down it's that you could see in the lives of the skeptics, in the lives of the doubters, in the lives of the broken, in the lives of the hurting, the power of Jesus. And that when you see it through the stories of what Christ has done, you may be moved from that area of, of doubt, that area of unbelief, to believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. And if you think it was an awesome thing for Thomas to know the risen God, beloved, it's even better when you get to not see and yet believe. Beloved in the Lord, God gave proof for the resurrection of Jesus. If you wrestle with it, one of the great books that has been helpful for many is The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, where he goes through the evidence of the resurrection. There is proof for the evidence of the resurrection. There is empirical data, science showing he lived. They felt his hands, they felt his side. He ate food, he is alive. But you are called today to believe in the resurrection because God has told you it's true. Because out of his great love for you, God has taken the stories of all that has happened and all that Christ has done. He's written them down so you would have not just 10 good friends telling you that Jesus is alive, but God himself would tell you the Savior reigns. And John writes this so that you would not be unbelieving. How quickly our faith can struggle. How quickly we can find ourselves wavering, how quickly we can find ourselves despondent, the glass is half full. How quickly God would come to us and lift up our eyes and show us Jesus again. And say, Oh, you of little faith. Don't be afraid. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Church has called me a place of faith. Christians are called to be men and women of courage, of belief, of certainty. Because Christ has risen and God has shown it. Beloved the Lord, don't be afraid. Don't fear the enemy. Don't fear the foe who tempts you day in and day out. Don't fear the accuser who reminds you of all the sins of your heart. Don't fear the enemy who threatens to kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Your savior, he's alive. He reigns at God's right hand and the weak and the faltering and the doubting and the troubled find salvation when they believe in him. Christ is risen. Fear nothing, but believe in the risen Lord and know you are indeed saved through the grace that is found in him. Let's join together in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful for the finished work of Christ. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given your son to the horrors of the cross, and you have raised him up to the glories of heaven, that we may know life in his name and we may have forgiveness in his name. Father, we pray that you will so grant us your Holy Spirit that we may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Redeemer lives. We find our hope and our courage and our confidence and our joy in the fact that the price has been paid. Our salvation has been secured. All our stains have been cast as far as the east is from the west and we know it all when we look upon the risen Christ, the risen Savior. Father, we pray you will strengthen us as your people to to serve and to minister in the confidence of that gospel promise, in the certainty of that gospel hope. And Father, we pray for those who may wrestle with doubt, who may wrestle with the struggles of, of the soul, that Lord, you yourself will meet them and you yourself will speak to them through your word, by your spirit, in a way they cannot avoid, they cannot turn aside from. They may hear the very voice of God and hearing they may believe. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you will grant your grace and your strength that we may not only press on for today or for tomorrow, but for every day until our risen Savior calls us home or he comes on the clouds to bring that final day of victory and that final day of judgment. Father, will you hasten it? Will you guide us in the meantime, Lord? May we be faithful as we wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.